Hi everyone, welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. I'm your host Spencer Lodge and it's my job to make the time you're about to give me as valuable as possible. My job here is to share content I've made across all of my endeavors and ventures as an entrepreneur and bring you stories, lessons and insights from my conversations with some great achievers in business and personal development. I'm an author, chairman of the Blue Sky Thinking Group here in Dubai and a really passionate content creator. Also on my own creative journey and with so much going on, this show is a way for me to funnel out value from all the work my team and I are doing so that we can share it with our audiences online in an easy audio format. For those that attend my seminars or follow me on social media, this is just some extra material to get stuck into on your own journey in business, sales, personal development or whatever aspect you're working on in improving your life. In today's episode, I'll be doing that by sharing an interview I did with Greg Secker, which we recorded at the Najahi Cha-Ching event. Greg is the CEO of a company called Learn to Trade. He's a specialist Forex trading expert. He really is a guru in the world of Forex trade. He's enormously successful and a very well-known figure where he speaks a lot about how you can learn to trade Forex yourself. Now, we were introduced by a really good friend of mine, a guy called Andy Harrington, who's also a public speaker. Um, I'll show more on that when I come back at the end of the interview, though. The interview lasts around 30 minutes and I really enjoyed it because Greg is just one of these super successful entrepreneurs that is a regular down-to-earth guy. He's always smiling and he's just such a happy person. But more importantly for me, you know, learning about the Greg Secker Foundation, the charity he founded to help children with impoverished lives over in the Philippines, and even more so about the actual town that he built. Yeah, he built a town over in the Philippines to try and help people live better lives. There's loads of incredible takeaways from this interview, there really is. And if you're a would-be entrepreneur, someone trying to build a business, then Greg is a real great, great, great guy to listen to. If you've enjoyed several of these podcasts or it's your first one, I'd really love for you to rate and review the show. Ideally, a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or some love on the SoundCloud comments. It all helps to get the show discovered. Also, do me a favor if you're listening to this episode right now and it's safe wherever you are so you're not driving or at risk of falling off a treadmill or cutting yourself while you're cooking maybe, grab your phone, send me a DM on Instagram at spencer.lodge or email me at sl at make-it-happen.com. I love the ratings and reviews, but one thing I never expected was all the messages and comments on my social media. Also, if you're on Facebook, uh, I'm I'm there. You can check me out there too. Go to facebook.com forward slash Spencer Lodge official. Anywhere you can contact me directly, please do. And I can't, can't wait to hear from you. So if you're ready to get stuck in, I really hope you enjoy my interview with Greg Secker. And remember, at the end of the interview, I'll be back to tell you more about how the interview took place, what I've learned and applied, and share a few notes from the content. From, from all I've learned about you, yeah. before actually meeting you, I've heard you're a pretty successful guy. Okay. So I take it you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you had a rich father that gave you five million quid like Stelios did for EasyJet, and you then set up a business, made a load of money off the back of the fact that dad was so successful. Is that, is that the story? Yes, yeah, sadly not. I wish it was though. Or do I wish it was? <laughs> no, I'm glad it's the way it was actually. My dad was quite working class, to be honest. My dad's a Norfolk boy. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, did, what did your dad do? My dad ran a, a very small family-run um, refrigeration business in Norfolk. My granddad was um, a, bit of a, a bit of a lad. He used to, my granddad was a jockey. Then he was a racehorse owner. He ran the Queen's horses. He was a bookie. He was a real philanderer. Tra- Travelled around the countries, you know, shagging birds and like live, really living the life, you know. Um, <laughs> 
my poor grandmother. Um, obviously that, that relationship didn't work out, but my dad was the youngest brother of five. Um, and my granddad um, saw an opening for air conditioning in the UK and was the first importer of air conditioning units. So think what, about from that. like Japan or somewhere? Yeah, from Japan, um, from China. Um, and America. I think his first units were actually Where, when must have that been then? What decade must have that been? In the 70s? Or? No, 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 like 60s, early 60s. Early 60s. Yeah. So, um, my dad used to sell air conditioning. So my dad was, was the youngest of five brothers, the good-looking one and the great salesman. And um, he used to sell air conditioning units to estate agents. Because you think about it, in the summertime, you go and stand in estate agents, they've got no air conditioning, all the sun's pouring in, you're sweating profusely, yeah. or you're not going to buy a house. That's a big purchasing decision. So yeah. for the cost of seven grand to stick an air conditioning unit in, you get your client to stay there longer, potentially buying a property, you get 3% commission on. That's a no-brainer deal, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah, all day long. He flogged it to all of them. That's <laughs> how he, yeah, but it was a little, it was a small-run family business, but Dad taught me how to sell. Dad taught me how to... Um, well, Dad, Dad taught you by, by kind of like... I trying the road there, to them. Being, yeah. Okay, being on the road yeah. From summer holidays, I was never the kid that got pocket money. I was never the kid that, um, you know, that oh, a couple, a lot of kids in my neighbourhood got pocket money, right? Mine was my dad went right. I'm gonna show you how to make money because you're not getting any pocket money. And I was like, oh, come on, dad, you know, because you know, my mum and dad had a nice house. They got a pool in the backyard that my dad built though, because okay. he had no money. My mum said, oh look, you know, my mum was the year of Audrey Hepburn, right? Yeah. So she wanted like pool in the backyard, Saint Tropez, and all that. So dad was like, my bless, my mum and my dad have been married 50 years. They're like best mates. My dad actually goes to night school to learn how to put the internal metal system in and the concrete system to actually build my mum a swimming pool. Wow. Then my uncle, who's my dad's best mate, like my godfather, um, he's a plumber. He goes around some rich bloke's house who's like, whose pool boiler goes wrong, needs like, I don't need a washer fixing. Goes, mate, you can have to claim on the insurance for that. Puts it on the back of his truck, drives around daddy, goes, here you go, here's your. So my dad's got this story, he built this heated swimming pool for 350 quid for my mum. So they really scrimped and saved, they really worked hard. Um, my dad uh, gave me a bucket and a sponge, taught me how to clean a car and wax it in 20 minutes. There's a product that came called Myrrh that came yes, out. Yes, I Do you remember, remember Myrrh. Myrrh. Was it that blue stuff? It's a blue. It was yeah, this blue yeah. thing, and you put and you put it on the. You'd, you'd chamois the car so it's a bit damp, and then you'd apply it wet, and then it would dry in like five minutes. And then you just wipe it off with a duster cloth, and the thing would. When I got that down, I could wash. I could wash your car and wax it, and Hoover it inside while the Myrrh was drying. It's all routine. I'd be done in eleven minutes, right? So I. So then my dad introduced me to all his mates in the village. So uh, I've got a car cleaning around. I've got like. I don't know, like 10 cars I'm doing a weekend, which is 50 quid. And I thought, what am I doing? So then I hired four kids in the village. I had a car cleaning around. I was making 450 quid when I was 14. Really? Yeah, I was paying them three quid and I was taking a tenner a car. So when, when did that give but you But then that? Dad took me out on the road and taught me to sell. Um, and you know, taught me those influencing skills. And you know, he, my dad was really, never really made any, he, you know, he wasn't ever rich, rich. Um, but he was okay. He was okay. You know, um, but he, ta he, he taught me the value of the pound, you know. Did you, as you grew up, did you, did you behave like a, like a good teenage and, and uh, adolescent type of kid or did you rebel, behave badly, no, my sister, get into drugs my, and booze and No, stuff? I didn't do any of that. My sister did. So she was the bad kid um, when she was young. She was the one that left home, did all the crazy stuff. And I was born on the same day as her, three years younger. So I watched it and I was like, that's what not to do. Yeah, so she got herself, I mean, she's amazing, but she's, she is like a firecracker. You know, she lives in LA now and she's just larger than life, my sister. Um, but she did make all the mistakes. I was like, no, I don't want to go through life like that. So I, 
I went to university. I was the only cousin out of 13 to do that, um, which I did well, but I was never going to be an academic. I wanted to get into business. Like I, I was desperate to do that. But mum and dad were like, look, you know, we reckon we could get you into university. We can afford to put you in a good school. Um, and so I did, I followed it through and I, and I actually came out, got a, a really top degree and I won what was called the Professor Lamming Prize for the student that submitted the best dissertation in animal physiology, if you can imagine, right? And I got, a, like, yeah, a PhD to do veterinary and I was like, I went, Dad, what do you reckon? Should I go and do, uh, you know, I've got, I can go to Edinburgh and do my PhD, Dad won't get a job. I went, really? And he said, well, look, son, I mean, I, you know, you're 20 years old now. I was working when I was 14. Um, I'm not really going to fund you through university, so you're going to have to work while you're up there as well. And I thought, working, doing a PhD, I'm also just going to work. Because I really didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want, I'd, I'd seen the business world. IT was getting big. This was the early 90s. So all my mates weren't in my year. They were masters, they were PhD, they were, they were, they were post-grads, right? Yeah, yeah. I used to always knock about with the boys who were a few years older than me because they had more to say and they were more interesting. And my mates were earning, you know, they'd done a bit of IT and they were IT consultants earning a thousand pounds a day yeah. working for, do you remember Siebel? Yeah. Before the first CRM, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know what Siebel, I think Oracle bought them or something, but my mates were like Siebel consultants earning a thousand, I'm like, a thousand a day? They were like, yeah, great, get into it. I'm like, right. No-brainer. So, No-brainer, yeah, so yeah. I, dropped all of the, I dropped as many modules as I could in my degree, took as many IT ones out. And then I had, I'll never forget this, I was like smoking a cigarette, right? Because we always just smoke and drink in those days. And my dad phones me up and I've just done my last exam. And it's that gap between you've just finished your finals and getting and and graduating, right? And you've got nothing to do but just party all the time. And dad calls up and says, son, um, I want you to know that um, I've just sent you your last 50 quid um, in the post. And he goes, I don't care if you become a bum or a billionaire, I'll always love you. But um, that's it, you've had your, you've had your lot. And I, and I put the cigarette out and I went, holy shit, like, I've got to actually do some work, right? I was panicked. So I phoned up my mate, Rob Crisp. I went, Rob, what are you doing today? He goes, I'm actually going to a grad fair, because he was a post-grad. Um, he was doing his master's. And I said, grad fair? I said, what's grad fair? He goes, it's, 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 a, it's a job fair, career fair. He goes, up at the University of Nottingham. Do you want to come with him? Yeah, I'm coming. I go there, I walk in there. So I'm, I'm an undergrad, right? I haven't even graduated. And this was really for, for you know, MSc students. Um, Thomas Cook Financial Services is, stand, is there. The guy, Paul Mayer, is the recruiting guy. And, I, and they've got this graduate program. I walk up and I, because I just sell this guy on myself, right, all about IT. I land the job pretty much at the job fair. I don't, before I graduate, I've started work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've started work. And I'm on this graduate, and, and Thomas Cook Financial Services, so Thomas Cook was a big holiday company. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they used to be the people who do your, 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 your holiday foreign exchange, didn't they? Exactly, exactly. so yeah. if you think about it, so people think Thomas Cook was the big holiday. 96% of their money came from commercial foreign exchange. In fact, actually, they built that business. This is a really interesting story. They built that business on traveler's checks. You know traveler's checks? Yeah, do you know, do you know how traveler's checks works? So you buy the traveler's checks, yeah. right? They've got your cash. Yeah. And, and the moment from when you buy those traveler's checks, which is normally two or three weeks before you go on holiday, at least yeah. that was in the old days, They right? put the money in their account. They, they put the money in their account and they trade it on the money markets, right? Better still if you never cash your traveller's checks. So in disasters, like in war, they'll go and sell a country like Iran or Iraq, they'll go and sell them white label traveller's checks just to protect people's money, to lock it in. So because they know that when you go to war with the United States, you're gonna get decimated and you want your money's gonna be worth nothing. So you can peg your money to a, uh, like a bond, if you will. Yeah. And when the war's over, you know, you, it's, it's better than putting money under your mattress. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that there's the biggest disasters in history caused Thomas Cook to really flourish, how weird is that? Some kind made, of weird. They made them. So you think about it like this, right? If you put your, if you put your, think of a time in history. Think of a great disaster in history, where people would have had travellers' checks that they never cashed. 
Oh wow, there's loads. Well, there's one big one, which which caused which really put Thomas Cook on the map. Which was what? Sinking of the Titanic. Oh really? Yeah, because there was like, never cash them. There's two thousand rich people, right? It was all the it was all, all the, the, the glitterazzi, right? All the first class passengers, all the second class passengers, they all had travellers' checks. Thomas Cook travellers' checks all sitting on the bottom of the Atlantic right now. Because while the passengers got off, their luggage and travellers' checks didn't. And it's all on the bottom of the Atlantic. And that was millions of dollars back then, which is worth billions of dollars now. And so I worked in that industry and I So Jordan, just just explain the environment. So you go for this job interview, you get the job, well, where do you go to work? So I go to work in Peterborough, first job, right? Which is for their, their big Thorpewood campus, right? And I start working in, 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 you know, the idea was they moved you around the business, right? So I started in global strategic marketing, um, which was brilliant, you know, all the 18 to 30 holidays and all that. And I was like, oh. and then I, they said, we're actually gonna put you in the foreign exchange department. I was like, okay. So I walk on there and this is like, so let's just timestamp this. This is mid nineties, right? So the internet's slow as a dog. You know, yeah. your internet's on a 28A modem. Do you remember those days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember you're loading your operating system with floppy disks, yeah. right? And it's Windows 95 and all that. Yeah. And I'm walking on there and everyone's uh, and broker dealers. So a broker dealer would be, let's say you, uh, you work for BMW and you worked in the treasury department and you've got to sell, uh, you've, you've got to send $20 million to the United States to buy parts to build cars, right? And you're, you're, in, you're in German, uh, you're in euros or you're in Deutschmarks, yeah, right? Yeah. We would have been Deutschmarks actually back then. And so um, your dealer would, you, you'd call up to Thomas Cook because you, you know the bank would charge you 50 basis points wide to do it. I mean, banks were terrible. Thomas Cook was the largest non-bank foreign exchange supplier in the world because whilst we had the travel business all around the world, of course, we had foreign exchange and, and travellers' checks around the world to support that business, and that's what then became a global network of currency trading for the Thomas Cook Group, which was you, you either used American Express, Travelex, or Thomas Cook outside of your bank, and you would get a much better deal. Rather than paying 50 basis points, you'd get 10 basis points wide, which when you're sending 20 million euros to, or to, sorry, $20 million to the United States, that's the difference between the, the trade costing you in commission something like 30 grand and five grand. Well, yeah. it's worth it, isn't it? You yeah. know, I mean, you think about it. And, and people who are savvy treasurers on behalf of big companies like that, don't do it through their banks, or at least they do a good deal with their bank. So. Of course, our dealers are on the phone all the time. Do you, do you want to send any, are you sending any dollars today? What you got to do? And you're saying, yeah, I've got to send $40 million to the States. I've got to send $50 million to Australia. And, and we go, okay, well, what spot rate do you want? And you'd say, I want that. And then they go, I can't really do that. We can get you there. And you'd be like, okay, now. And I walked into that world and I was just like mesmerized. But was that because the banks were so lousy at their rates or so greedy, greedy. that it made it really easy to undercome? Yeah, banks have always worked on, on client stupidity, right? I mean, banks work on client inertia which is inertia means you open up the bank account, it's too much of a hassle for you to close the account, end all your direct debits and you're standing Even orders. if you hate the bank. Even if you hate the <laughs> bank. Still, there, yeah. Everyone hates NatWest, right? Hate NatWest, hate NatWest, but you've been with NatWest for 20 years. Yeah, well, look, all the standing orders have got cancelled. Yeah. And that's why new banking regulations came in, which said you should be able to press one button and have all of those standing orders and direct debits reinstated with another bank within 24 hours, whatever, whatever the timestamp is. And that directive came in because they recognised that banks survived on inertia marketing, meaning you were stood still because you just the hassle factor yeah, yeah. of moving your bank bothered, was, yeah. you couldn't be bothered and banks leverage that like you have no idea so when when we were this nimble currency trading provider we had two functions we we did big offsets which meant that we traded currency as well as well as we filled, filled client orders and I walked into that at a time when the internet was just getting going and there was this idea I worked with a guy called Phil Walker in, in our Toronto trading floor and he said I think we can make this business 20 times bigger than it is. And right then we were cutting like 
20 million profit a year. And in the time I was there, we went from 20 million profit to over 250 million profit. That was pretty, wow. pretty impressive. We built this system called the Virtual Trading Desk. Where you this, was, this was, you were actually, actually Thomas Cook then or you'd left by then? No, I was in Thomas Cook then. That was, this was my first gig, right? And I, I built this thing with a trader in Canada, like staying up at night building this thing. Proof of concept, they gave us a budget of 50,000 pounds to build the first currency trading system ever. Can you believe that? And we didn't even spend the money. Like, we just sat at home building the thing. I and mean, I would be up till four o'clock in the morning, like crazy, like, this is so exciting. Because you as a treasurer would call up to one of our brokers to do a deal, yeah. and that'd be a one-to-one -one client relationship. I thought, hold on a sec. If I can give you a web page where you can go and ask for euros and I can give hundreds of clients a web page and only one dealer had to sit there and put a rate in, I can scale this business. And that's what we did. And it was, it was the most amazing experience. It led me, it, so it started off me being a geek and supporting some traders. And then it led quite quickly to me being moved to Toronto in Canada. And then I'm sitting, on, I'm sitting with dealers, which are different from traders. Dealers are talking to clients, getting their orders. Traders are making the money. And that's where I learned the art. So I'm sitting on, in, on trading floors in Toronto and Canada for like three years learning. So I'm having to interrogate them on, well, you know, I've got to model exactly what you're doing. So what are you doing? And they'd be like, get lost. I'd be like, come on, yeah. show me what you're doing. I'd fuck off, you stupid. You know, because I was a kid, right? And I'd be getting beaten up by Financial Times, rolled up and all that. And these are old boys that have been making them. What the IT twat for? I said, you might be, I might be the IT twat. This is all going on line mate yeah. and and what ended up happening I said by the way if you're a trader your job's protected because we need traders to take expected positions to make money it's dealers that can lose their jobs because those dealers are going to become web pages yeah and so through that course and that journey I watched the biggest amount of money being made and lost than I'd ever seen in my entire life and I and I and I got with three traders that... Did you, did you take that for granted or did you sit there literally often in awe of that? I, I, I literally was... I was so keen on being enterprising and making money that, you know, I came from a world where if I wanted to make money, you had to graft and make it. And I was, and I was prepared to graft, right? I, so for me, I was like, I brought like... I'm from Norfolk, right? You have to dig ditches. You have to... A car cleaning business. When I was at university, I used to build 386 computers. You remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could build, a, I could build you a 486DX400 computer I could buy the components for 450 quid in Nottingham. I could knock you a computer out and sell it to you for 850 quid. It'd still be 700 quid cheaper than you could buy it in the shops. I had a racket where I was building them at, at university with all my mates who would be like sitting there smoking, drinking, playing like games. We were building 40 computers at a weekend. So I was up for making money. So I'm sitting on a trading floor in Toronto and I'm like, hold on a second. Are you telling me if you do that, that, that? And they're like, you, you, that happens. And they're like, yeah, yeah, what of it? I'm like, what do you mean, what of it? I can automate that. And, and, and you know, because I had this tough, strong ground, I just built a currency trading system. Now I'm learning trading strategies a year later on a trading floor with guys that are, you know, the guys that are smashing 38 billion euros. And I'm like, so I'm like, dad, got a few quid I can borrow? And he's like, no. I'm like, what do you mean no? I said, Dad, I've just been sat on a trading floor, watched $17 million being made last week using this one simple strategy they keep using. Lend me some money. Dad's like, no, your granddad was a gambler. I said, this is not gambling, Dad. <laughs> said, this is not gambling. It's not a cheap. Dad's like, no, no, you have to talk to your mum. I went, mum, will you? Mum, 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 straight away. Yeah, yeah. She was like, I'll give you the money. I went, how much did you borrow? Five grand. <laughs> I turned it into 56,000 quid in 11 months. I split it with my mum. Did you? Mum said, mum said, I won't lend it to you, you can have it. Just why don't we split the upside? I went, 
business partner. Brilliant. Uh, so we, so we, uh, and, and do you know what? The funny thing is, is we never split it. She let me keep it. <laughs> I made 56 grand. Then I, my granddad died and I put, put some money in a, um, a property, I remortgaged a property and, um, and I traded that up using exactly the same strategies. But you've got to remember, I, I don't think I would have done it on my own. I'm in a room with guys who weren't afraid to lose a million dollars. You know, they're, they're trading a $38 billion account. And they also believed in that, that, that asset class as a, yeah. a place to be. Yeah, you know, exactly. They were into it all as you well. You've got to understand the currency markets outside of the currency trading world, everyone thinks it's a scam. Everyone thinks it, and it is fraught with scams. I mean, just being in this industry, you get called a scammer. I mean, I'm like, I come from an institutional trading background, and then I start teaching people retail space. People are like, are you, is this a scam? I'm like, I know why you're saying that. Yeah, but that's that. because there's a load of people out. I mean, my, my parents retired to Cyprus a few years ago. Yeah. And there's shit loads of the old Forex boys over there. Yeah. And everyone's sitting around my mum and dad's dinner table, and like, the story about how they gave X amount of money to the Forex guys. Yeah, and, and they've lost it. It's yeah. all gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They trusted Joan or, yeah, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or Gary or Kevin or whoever yeah. it might be who called them up. Well, I met some people at this event here today, and they were saying that, um, you know, they, they gave their money with some algorithm I don't take anyone's money I just teach them what I do and it's up to them to do it because God the money that I've watched people lose by just giving it to who then suddenly disappear they're gone and I'm like well then I go well hold on a sec did, did, did you check if they were regulated no I didn't all right did you ask to see their audited accounts no I didn't I went you know you're a really bright person in one space in your life but you get a little bit excited and your emotions kick in and then you act like a five-year-old child you just give hundred thousand pounds of your family money what are you doing I, go, I, I you come know. from a wealth management background and yeah. I, the amount of times I've had conversations with people that said Spencer could you research this company for me please and I'm like okay tell me about it well they're in Shanghai they're called um, JT Marlin or whatever it might be called yeah. okay and and I'm like yeah, I can check it out. How much money does my my question there is default is that how much money did you give them? And they go, oh, 10 grand. I'm like, no, how much did you really give them? Yeah, yeah. And I know people, no, much more, way more, five, six, seven hundred thousand and up, but we can't get hold of them. And I'm like, Jesus, man, people make the craziest of decisions sometimes, don't they? Well, I met, um, I met the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, um, 10 years ago. So uh, how about this for a funny story, right? So I'm speaking in Sydney with Success Resources, our partners out there. Um, and I noticed on the front page of Sydney Morning Herald that the Wolf of, and I just read the Wolf of Wall Street, the book, just on the book, my yeah. honeymoon in Maldives, right? And so there I am six months later and it's like, oh wow, the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort is speaking in Sydney. I'm gonna go see him. So I call the promoter up, because I know all the promoters, and I go, what's going on, what's the gig tonight? And they say, oh yeah, he's speaking at the Sydney um, Town Hall. And I go, yeah, what's going, after, what's going on afterwards? Because I knew there'd be a dinner or something. He goes, yeah, yeah, there's a dinner, you can pay 20 grand to sit next to him. I'm just a bugger, I'm not paying fucking 20 grand to sit next to him. Just put me next to him. And they went, all right because we're all friends. So I go watch the gig and Jordan Belfort's there, but he's kind of sounding like a Tony Robbins, you know, it's like, it's like, which doesn't really work because I'm noticing, hold on a sec, you know, you've got all these young boys in there who are in their early 20s. They want to hear about the cocaine. They want to hear about the prostitutes. They want to hear about the, the yacht that sank. They want to hear about the midgets that got thrown against the target. They want to hear all those stories. And he's there talking like a motivational speaker. No one's interested. So I'm like, oh God, this is a bit of a train smash. This is like a really bad personal development seminar gone wrong. So I go to the dinner and I let him like chat. Then I, then I sidle up to him a little bit and I went, so uh, you need to seminar game then? Anyway, and he went, yeah, I said, it's quite funny you didn't sell anything at the end of it. I said, I thought you would have monetized that given the big debt you've now got to the uh, US government of $100 million. He's like, what do you mean sell something? I said, well, you know, um, normally when presenters 
do a presentation, speak like that, they normally sell. He goes, well, what, what, what can I sell them, right? So he wants to know it. And I said, well, the thing you're really good at is sales, right? Because he, he and, and that's why he then, that's what got, that, that literally was the moment he built the Jordan Belfort straight line sales persuasion system through a conversation with me. I then wow. took him on a tour around England just before, and this was before the film got greenlit. And so I really got to know him um, and I was fascinated by him because I'd read the book and I really I said, why did so many people trust you with their money? Like, I, I can't believe, you know, and I said, it was, a, you know, you scammed people, right? And he goes, well, it was pump and dump, right? That's, that's what was penny going, stocks, right? it was penny stocks, you know, and do you know what they did? They reverse stock split those stocks. So they took stocks which were, like penny stocks, like pink sheet stocks, right? But they would reverse stocks, but you know how reverse stock split is? So yeah, so they made these stocks look like they were four to five dollars. Same price Microsoft and Intel was trading at that time. And then they call you up and they go, hey look, we've got this really hot thing that's moving. So they made the stock look like it was the same in the same breed and caliber as a Microsoft or an Intel. I'm like, man, how'd you do that? Like, how did you really do that? He's like, well, you know, we just got carried away. We just went too far. I said, but he said, you know, the most surprising thing was you'd have, we weren't selling to stupid people. We were selling to lawyers. We were selling to doctors. We were selling to professional people who, whose mind just got blown by greed. And it's amazing. And I see it all the time. People's minds get blown by greed and where they're just, in, you know, these are people that are, you know, intelligent management consultants, work for PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte, really bright, intelligent people then we'll just take their family finances and trash it. And you think, God, it takes people a lifetime to build an empire. But do you not notice though with people when it comes to money, if you ever talk to them about investing money in any way, that actually they might ask polite questions or they might even look like they're asking deep, meaningful questions about what goes on in the middle, but they just want to know if I invest this much, am I going to get that much back? Yeah, yeah. That bit that goes on in the middle, that it's almost like, it's almost like they, they close turn their a blind eyes. They close their eyes. Like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, what's the derivative? I don't know. Okay, well, the derivative will get you 20% yeah. over the course of the next six months. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, no, 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 stop. Fine. Yeah. You, you know, that kind of thing. And I find that that happens a lot with people with money, period. Yeah. Even business people. Yeah. It's kind of like, I'm going to set a business up, I'm going to sell it for X million multiple in the future. And it's yeah. like, yeah, but. Yeah, what's the bit in the middle? Yeah, and I think yeah. it's a little bit like your gravestone. Yeah. It's like you've got the date you were born and the date you died. There's this little dash in the middle that yeah. it's kind of like, unless you know who you are, nobody knows what that is. That's right, yeah. How did you learn magic? My granddad was, on my mum's side, was one of the founders of the Magic Circle. One of the founding members, should I say. Um, and I loved, I loved magic as a kid. So my, um, I started collecting magic tricks when I was four years old. I've got a Chinese medicine cabinet, right? There's this cabinet with a hundred drawers in it, all with Chinese inscriptions on. You pull each drawer out, they're like long, thin drawers in sections. They used to keep all their herbs and stuff in, yeah. right? Well, I've got an, an 850-year-old Chinese medicine cabinet. Each drawer has got a different magic trick to it that I've collected since I've been four years old. And you kept them all? Mate, I've collected them all. I've got 480-odd wow. magic tricks in my study. In my study, I've got uh, a library with like ladders on it that move. Yeah. I always wanted an old study yeah, like yeah. that, you know, with proper old like Ottomans and proper old uh, Chesterfields leather sofas. And I've got Winston Churchill's chair in my study. I've got an Andy Warhol on the wall. It's a real old kind of just just like this most eclectic, mad thing. One corner of it's all magic tricks. I've got hot air balloons on, on little magic thread hanging from the ceiling, so all different sizes. So it looks like, you know, it's the most, and it's the most magical room in my home. And I sit in there, that's where I run all my companies from. And, and I sit there doing magic tricks and it's-, and how, it's often, how often do you do a trick? Do you, oh. you know, you're here and you've got a couple of tricks and obviously yeah. John likes a bit of it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. But normally would you, would you carry something with you? Yeah, normally I'd go somewhere, just 
and most, I mean, I'm a dad of three, right? So, and kids love it. So I always have something on me that I can do. Even if I, I can, you know, I could do sleight of hand with coins and things like that to make. I, I was actually the worst magician because I'll show you a trick, right? I'll do a trick and then I'll show you how it's done. Right? And you're not, you're not supposed to know how it's done because that takes magic away. But I like to show people how things work. So when I first learned how to make money, excuse me, when I first learned how to make money, trading, I taught all my mates from school. I used to have like 40 of my mates come around in my house, all smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, trading because I couldn't wait to share the idea. So that kind of then, that's what built the business. It wasn't a passion to make money because I was already making money. It was like, I quite liked being the guy on stage or the guy teaching at the front of the room and showing people how to do it. And it kind of came from those early days of being a little, ma little magician. I'd always be like, right, you know, here's a, oh, there's a thumb tip, you know, and I'd show people how it worked. And I quite got off on that idea of opening someone's mind up to something different. That became kind of the addiction, which makes me a bad magician, but it makes me a good educator. Now you made you made plenty of coin over the years. Yeah. What what are the? I I had problems. I made a lot of money many years ago, and it turned me into an arrogant, obnoxious, egotistical arsehole, basically. Really. And 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 my life changed in 2012. It came down to the earth with a bang, and I had to wake up and realise who I was. Do you, as, have you ever experienced as you've become more and more successful over the years? Um, an impact of that in a negative way as opposed to a positive way? Yeah, uh, I have. Or, okay. Yeah, I have, yeah. Um, I mean, I own 23 companies now and uh, I've been through similar things to that where, um, you know, you, you take your eye off the ball, right? And let other people run it. Um, and, and, I, and I've definitely had that experience where I've let other people run different parts of my company and other and parts of my company. And then you realize, and, and I remember feeling the great sense of sadness that um, people I really loved and trusted and took care of and looked after um, really betrayed me. Totally. I, I took one of my friends who I knew I was two years, since I was two years old. Um, he, uh, I made him CEO of my company. Um, he, he went bust in 2008. He was a, uh, he was a guy that um, owned um, a property, uh, an estate agency business, right, in Norfolk. Um, 2008, he couldn't weather the storm. He ran it with his dad, went totally bust, met a girl from Australia, wanted to move to Australia. I was just opening up one of my businesses over there. I said, why don't you come be my CEO? I bought him a $2 million home, which I put half a million dollars down on it. And, uh, and I said, look, I'll, I'll pay. I'll pay for the house. You just give me half. Give me half the mortgage. So I let him. I let him live rent for rent half. And I said, when I sell it, I'll give you half for the property as well. Most incredible deal. Um, and yeah, and and it was amazing. He he worked for me for like nine years. Um, he wasn't the brightest guy in the world. You know, probably shouldn't have made him a CEO. But he was a nice enough lad, so I thought. But he was just yeah. He was he was worked hard. Uh, was kind of riding on the coattails of the success of the business. And then the business had like a, a step back for a short period of time. And it's interesting what happens when suddenly your business gets a step back for a short period. Just one of the, just a couple of companies out in my Asia Pacific region had a step back. And it was like, I could see it was a momentary step back. He signed himself off with stress for two months, then tried to move liquidators into one of my companies and then tried to th and threatened me and, said, and got his barrister or his lawyer to say, unless you give me the house you're living in, I'm going to bust your company. I was like, what are you doing? Like it was the most, and I thought, wow, it's amazing when really tough things happen. It's interesting to see the people that really show up. And that was, I found that the most heartbreaking thing was to think, you know, somebody I'd really trusted. And, and you lose faith in the human race, you do, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it, it chips away. Yeah, 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 it does. And I had to really kind of try and find a different meaning. I'm like, 
you know, just because you've made a load of money, people think it's acceptable to treat you like shit. Yeah. And I, and I found that, 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 it's you've got a few quid, we'll say what type yeah, of thing, yeah, yeah, it's okay, you, you know, you, you, you know you, you've you, got a massive, you've got you'll 10 million pounds. You'll get over it, yeah. yeah. You'll get over it, you've got loads of money, right? It's like, well, hold on a second, there's a human being in here. And you know, and, just I, and I carried your heart for 10 years while you were like down the Swanee and I've set you up and this is how you repay me, wow. Has that stopped you? Being, because it has me, being as open to new relationships with people. Yeah, that's and, a great and question. Getting close to people. Yeah, I've got to say, I was, I always never wanted to lose my kind of childlike fascination and playfulness and openness because, you know, I've always had the ability to be not glib, but open to people and not be cynical. Um, and, you know, those kind of experiences do make you twice, you know, once bitten, twice shy kind of thing, you know. And I don't ever want to be like that because that could close you down to other amazing opportunities in the future. But, yeah, those, 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 are, they, those opportunities do leave, those instances do leave a scar, you know. And I came out of that really scarred. I was like, wow, you know. And I came out and it's really interesting that, you know, in those moments when bad things happen like that, it's the meaning you attach to it you know, really defines what it is. I mean, you, you know, you can rise from those moments, you can fall. And I had a real bad time with it. I was like, wow, you know, how could somebody do that? You know, did so you struggle to let it go? Yeah, yeah, I really did. And that's what I, I yeah. it was like, I, just, I couldn't, I couldn't, it even occupied my mind long after. Yeah. I couldn't find peace with it. Yeah. And okay, I associated it with that one individual, but I still couldn't find peace with the fact that that could happen to me again. Well, see, this is how I found peace with it. I, I stopped worrying about it happening to me again and stop worrying about things happening to me and realize that this is what this person and their life was about, right? And it had nothing to do with me. That's, that's how they live their life, you know? They, you know. Yeah, but you should, it's kind of like, we should have known that. You've known the guy for many years. Yeah. So you'd like think, yeah. you would. And but he was a great salesman. He was my best salesman, right? So he was pitching me all the time. He's like, oh, Greg, you're this, you're Greg, you're that. And really underneath it all, when I then, and what was interesting for me is that when I took him out of the way, I should have never made him CEO, it was my stupid fault. So then I go in, I start investigating my business. I'm like, hold on a sec look at my businesses. I'm like, this is not running the way I used to run. There was like money being hidden there. This, and I was like, oh my God, this is a rat's nest. I mean, it was a rat's nest. Okay, and... so then did you then look at it and say, did you take the responsibility on yourself yeah. and say, I fucked up? Yeah, it's totally yeah. my fault. It was 100%. That was the only, work, that's the only way I could deal with it. It's the only way I can move forward. Because you know what I learned is that when you blame other people, you remove the power to change it. When you bring it back to your own lap and you go, it's your fault, you made that decision to do that. You should have never done that. You should have kept him as basically a glorified sales guy, nice guy, kept him in his box. Not you, 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 you know, you give the wrong guy too much power. It's your mistake, Greg. You didn't analyze. Did you? Did I? If I'd have, you know, and it's again, it's like the guy that um, you know bets all his money with you know with a currency trader, right? Or the guy that gives all his money to Jordan Belfort. You know, it's like in the cold light of day, if I'd have sat there and gone, right, what am I looking for in a global CEO? And does this guy match? I'd have gone, don't be stupid, of course yeah, it doesn't. Dumb, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you know, but you make a decision quickly, right? You think, oh, actually, I really, you know, he'd had a little bit of a run in a couple of Asian businesses. Oh, yeah, and that's going to work out great. Put them in the role and then, wow. Well, it's the whole thing about liking someone. If you like someone, yeah. then you find more reasons to like them, don't you? That's right, you're already half convinced, yeah. aren't you? You know, you're just, you're just trying to give it, you're like, oh, that's not... But, but, if you actually just sort of list out and go, what are the most important skills? And you go, wow, he's failing on all of those. You yeah. know, you know, strategic thinking, uh, discipline, all these different. If you've really thought it through, you think, of course not. But yeah, the likability factor certainly greases those wheels, doesn't it? Sucks it in. One last question before we finish. Uh, you do a lot of philanthropic stuff, yeah. um, and a lot of people can look at that as being pretentious or for some form of ego play. What? 
what meaning does it give to you? I know what you do, and for the audience, you know, you've done a lot of building a village and you've done a lot of work for the charity and the people in the Philippines that you've worked with. But what, is it, what does it do for you? How does it make? It just feels good. That's the key. That's all I can say. You know, I've, I've bought all the Lamborghinis and helicopters and all those and home. Yeah, it just kind of didn't have much meaning to it, right? And, and I thought to myself, yeah, we set this foundation up because when I started to have, when I had my first few kids, I, I, I thought it would be a good idea. I like the teaching thing. So I did this thing called the Youth Leadership Summit. 2,000 kids a year from 13 to 17 year olds. And I've got to, and because I'm in the speaking game, so I know all the speakers, like Lisa Nichols, I'll grab her and put her on stage with a load of kids at some point if she's up for it, because she'd be amazing. And I had this really amazing opportunity where I met all these incredible speakers. And I'd pick up the phone to them because I'd like a chat to you and I'd pick up the phone to you and say, would you come and MC or speak at the event or something? Because that's how it works, right? Yeah. And I realized, you know, if I could pick up the phone to these guys and say, look, I've got, I'm, I'm running a kids camp for 2,000, it's called the Youth Leadership Summit. It's a week long residential program. I'm paying for everything um, please come speak pro bono I'll pay for your flights and your accommodation and everything but really serve these kids these guys say yeah I mean you're getting people like a Tony Robbins level saying yes you know I'm not, not, not that we had Tony Robbins but we had people of that ilk yeah, yeah. Um, in the areas of health wealth leadership entrepreneur that was amazing and that got the foundation going and well to run a foundation you've got to register for the charity commission you know you need structure you need staff and then now we're running right and I'm like well, what should we do next and then suddenly the Philippines happened, right? So we'd done a few, we'd, we'd, built a, we'd built a couple of medical centers on the side of an orphanage. And then the Philippines happened and um, my housekeeper and her husband, their, uh, their brothers lost their homes and they got washed. I mean, they live in homes that can get washed away. You know, it's not like our brick and mortar homes. These are homes which, you know, big flood. And this was the largest ever typhoon to hit landfall in the UK, in, in, on earth. So I went over there and I thought, well, rather than doing a youth leadership summit this year, why don't we make a lot more money? And, and it just felt good, you know. There was this little girl we met called Fatima who had a, who had a, um, a big cancerous growth about the size of my, your head, yeah, on the side of her body. And I, and I put her in my car and I drove her up to the hospital with my mum at midnight. I'd met her while we were building these houses. Um, they brought her along and said, come meet Mr. Greg. So I meet her and I went, oh my God, I got my mum calling the chief general surgeon in Manila to operate on this girl. I get the guy, I've got the dad in the back seat. I've got the little girl sitting on my mum's lap in the back seat. I get, I've got this little girl. Um, they operated on her that night. This little girl, Fatima. She was, she couldn't go to school because she was so bullied by all the other kids. They took the piss out of her. She's now my son's age. She's ten years old. She's beautiful. Her body's totally fixed. She's now a head girl at the school. All that stuff, mate. That to me is like the best bit. Do you know what's sad about it? Is that it takes us too long to learn that, I know it does. doesn't it? Because we're not taught it, we have to learn it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. But at least we do learn it, you know, that's the thing. You know, we do beat ourselves up by not achieving enough early enough. But as long as we get the message at some point, you know, you kind of give other people unconscious permission. You know, every time you do something good like that, you're teaching everybody else a, way of dif a different way of living. That's the key thing. Thank you so much for talking to me, man. Pleasure, mate. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So there you have it, my interview with Greg Secker. I really hope you enjoyed it and it was worth the time and you learn much more about Greg's story. And it made you feel more confident, you know, that you could set up your own business or you could, whether it being a trader or whether it was being an entrepreneur yourself, you could go forward and really achieve things because as, as we could see from the interview, Greg's just a regular guy and he went out and made it happen. 
So just so you understand a bit more about how the interview came about, um, I'd heard about Greg Secker for some time and I heard about the success that he'd had. And I was the host and MC and a speaker at an event called Cha-Ching, which was here recently in Dubai, run by an organization called Najahi. Um, Najahi are the success resources equivalent over here in the Middle East. Now, when I knew Greg was speaking, I thought I've got to get him on the show. He's just one of these guys that's got so much character and charisma and personality that I'm sure he's just gonna be able to share some real nuggets of information and uh, bring some real value to us, the listener, really, me, the interviewer, you guys, the listener. Uh, and as I re- was going through the interview, I, and I remember thinking, you know, how much depth there was to who he was, the challenges he'd faced along the way, the fact that he's not only teaching people to trade, but he'd built a piece of software to enable people to go ahead and trade Forex much easier, which, and Forex is the biggest traded market in the world. Now, you could see that Greg was a really kind and welcoming guy, and he just makes me feel at ease whenever I'm around him. Apart from that, he's a magician as well in his spare time, and he tells terrible jokes, which makes me laugh even more. And then for me, the real key takeaways were you can achieve anything you want to. You really can. But also, if you want to be smart in business, then make sure you stick to something, you focus on it, and you never you know, never get caught up in getting attracted or um, pulled into different directions and different ideas. You stay focused on what you're good at and deliver it in that way. And I think that more, more than anything else, the fact that Greg not only has been successful, made an enormous amount of money, he's turned around and said, right, hold on a minute, I've got enough money for me, I'm gonna try and help others, and he focused on doing so, not just with some donations to some charities, but by setting up his own organization and going out there and being very practical with it. And so, yeah, what a great guy. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you got any feedback, as I mentioned, email me at uh, sl at make-it-happen.com or you can message me on Instagram at spencer.lodge or fear Facebook at the Spencer Lodge official page. Drop me a note, you know, let me know what you think. Let me know who you'd like me to interview. Let me know what you what you value from that interview as well and uh, and what your takeaways were yourself. And if you're feeling extra generous, do me a massive favor because it really matters enormously to me. Okay, leave me a five-star review on the comments at SoundCloud or anywhere you see this podcast. It would really help to get the podcast out there to more listeners. Thanks very much for your time, folks, and I'll see you soon.